morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Prairie Doc Radio. We hope that if you have questions of any nature, you will call us at 692-1430. We're going to focus a little bit about uh, gastrointestinal issues because our uh, television show this week is on anything gastrointestinal. So if you have questions that have anything to do with the mouth down to the exit, um, <laughs> give us a call and we'll specifically you know, address some diet issues. Uh, so, good morning, I, Rick. Uh, good morning, Joni. I enjoyed uh, you bringing that up. I'm generally the one that you roll the eyes uh, on <laughs> when I, when, well, when you I can bring see up how the, I you said, said exit. It <laughs> the nicely. Exit. I think about the exit periodically. It's it's maybe the exit to you, but it's bread and butter to me. You know that's. How <laughs> But um, sorry, I couldn't help myself. Welcome so. to Kayla. Well, she is yes. the dietitian. Kayla, it's at very Ivy. nice to have you. Yes, uh, thanks here. for having me. So um, uh, we're we're talking about upper GI mostly. We're going to have tomorrow night uh, Tim Ridgeway, who is a really a great gastroenterologist from Sioux Falls, mostly involved with the School of Medicine now more and more. And uh, some of the topics that we're going to we're going to bring up will be things like celiac disease milk intolerance, malnourishment, um, reflux, reflux esophagitis, and that's kind of the dietitian's bailiwick, is it not? It, it can be, and certainly I've been seeing the last couple of days I've gotten quite a few questions with just people even worried about FODMAPs and that kind of diet that they're What's trying that? to follow, the FODMAPs diet. So Don't know what the FODMAPs oh, diet Well, that's is. against anything that's fermentable, oligosaccharides, um, the sugar alcohols, they have issues with their small intestine and their large intestine absorbing load, so they get a lot of, it's usually related to IBS a lot of the time, so right, yeah. that's something I'm seeing a lot more in the store. So no, IBS meaning irritable bowel syndrome, and the classic symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome would be what? A lot of that's going to be gas, bloatingness, discomfort, diarrhea, constipation, they kind of, some people will go from one extreme to the other, right. unfortunately. So, uh, so what foods are you talking about that they would avoid? So there's certain um, fruits that you're going to avoid. Apples is kind of on the top of that list. Um, you can usually do you know, different vegetables. It depends on the ratio of glucose to fructose. So if it has more than a one-to-one -one ratio, you have to stay away from that particular um, fruit, vegetable. Um, obviously, no artificial sweeteners of any kind. Um, certain, I have lots, I have a couple of lists, and usually they'll get handed a list from their doctor, too, saying these are the ones you need to avoid. But... Um, apples tend to be the highest ones. Certain citrus fruits you have to stay away from as well. So, But just like anything with the bowel, it's kind of a individualized thing, so it's not one thing works for everybody. I had a great uh, case of a gentleman who had been told he had IBS, this irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, diarrhea, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, gas problems, gallbladder symptoms, and never a gallbladder problem, so on and so forth. And... Um, I said, ha ha, you could have celiac disease, and I tested him with the uh, 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 tissue transglutaminase antibody, which is the, the blood test, the TTG antibody test, that shows that you've developed an antibody against this particular type of protein, therefore uh, the indicator for celiac disease, and he didn't have it, you know, and I thought, oh, Boy, I thought for sure you had celiac disease. Uh, but before he left and before we had the TTG antibody test, I kind of went through avoiding all of the things that can cause, uh, that have celiac uh, symptoms. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the gluten, 
uh, diet. So I put them on a gluten-free diet for a week while we were waiting the TTG antibody test. And he said, my problem went away immediately <laughs> with the, TT, with the uh, gluten-free diet. So then there's this whole thing in the medical literature that say, well, some people have gluten sensitivity, except they don't have positive testing. You know, they may have, they have, uh, they may not have celiac disease, but they have gluten intolerance. What do you think about that? I have a lot of people that come in and tell me that thing because they, they're looking for a gluten-free diet. Usually one of my first questions is, well, when were you diagnosed with celiac disease? And they usually tell me, well, I haven't been, but I do have a sensitivity to it. Um, so then we just, you know, I kind of guide them along through the store and figure out what, what can we do? What changes can we make? Are they going to, if it's a sensitivity, you know, they don't have to be quite as cautious maybe about completely avoiding it, but they still just for their own comfort level want to get it out as much as possible too. So we go through the store and um, not just the health market because now we're getting so many more items mainstream from you know main companies that we're used to seeing that are that are putting out a gluten-free product and then there's just lots of things that are naturally gluten-free that you can just reassure them that you can continue to eat this and you'll be just fine right. why do you think that is rick what's going on in their gut um well if you think about it um let's say the 300 million years you know the, the three million years uh, human-like uh, beings were walking on the earth you know and uh, for the last two or three hundred thousand years where we have been um, hunters and gatherers and uh, and really ten thousand years ago when we discovered wheat it was on the side they know exactly where that wheat was discovered on the side of one mountain between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers that was the the origin of farming <clears throat> and the wheat was uh, discovered and then they would plant the wheat seed and then they'd plant it again and plant it again and it spread throughout Europe and the world uh, and off after that uh, the idea of um, having to run after the antelopes why don't we just put them in a cage and uh, or the whatever it is and we ended up with uh, ranching to go along with the farming um, and then that's we got not corn. That's not explaining the and, gut. Uh, but <laughs> the point is, is all these years we didn't have wheat. We didn't have grains that were grazed uh, up until only just a blink of the eye ago in human uh, uh, age uh, 10,000 years ago. But that, why does a person who's eaten gluten, eaten bread, and then like your, your example, all of a sudden this person's having problems. I think it's not all of a sudden. I mean, people who have gluten-sensitive enteropathy, commonly they don't know that they have this gluten sensitivity until they get into trouble. I had a patient who presented with iron deficiency, anemia, and weight loss. I had another patient who had um, uh, neuropathy. Uh, and it's interesting, the man who had neuropathy um, the numbness, numbness. numbness and tingling in his fingers and his feet, and it started to ascend. It was a B12 deficiency associated with gluten sensitivity. And in his whole life, he had been intolerant of, uh, of uh, lettuce. Once he realized that, uh, glucose or, or, uh, uh, that um, gluten was the problem, he, he, be, he was able to tolerate lettuce. He was be able to tolerate milk. Milk was another thing. Well, he, it wasn't that he couldn't tolerate. He thought he couldn't. Right. And, so, and my point there was that people who, people who have gluten sensitivity have weird deals and, uh, and that you don't always know that you have it. Now that we have a blood test, 
uh, we test all the family members and we're discovering it. People don't know that they've got it until bad things happen. So it's it's something that's kind of a sliding, uh, you slide into it. And, um, and I think the people who, who, don't have, who don't have celiac disease but who have gluten sensitivity just find that they feel a whole lot better off of it. And we were, and, and back to the original point, we were, you know, we were hunter-gatherers all these years without wheat, without the things that are, um, that are raised on a farm, that are part of the farming story, and that uh, we were built this way, and it's only been 10,000 years of, of uh, eva- you know, of change that uh, has brought us to be able to tolerate these things, including milk. Milk was another mm-hmm. one. We need to take our first break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more and get the dietitian's view on this. So uh, you're listening to Prairie Doc Radio. Call us with your questions, 692-1430, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening. We have Dr. Rick Holm in studio. We have Kayla Amon, a dietitian in studio, and I'm Joni Holm, filling in for Joan Hogan. Uh, so tell us... Kayla, what do you see a lot of people that have a need to eliminate gluten in their diet? And what do you recommend? I do. And it kind of comes in spurts sometimes, it seems like. And sometimes you'll see people that do have true celiac disease and some that have the gluten sensitivity. But sometimes the ones that are gluten sensitive almost have more signs and symptoms than the ones that have celiac because you'll get a person that comes in and says well i have celiac disease but i don't you know if i do happen to little eat a little bit of wheat rye or barley i don't feel bad about it like i don't Mm -hmm. have a symptom but then you have those that don't have it so they have gluten sensitivity and they just catch a whiff of it it seems like and they're having the worst day ever so it's just kind of interesting the two extremes but you know what i do is try and meet them where they're at i mean if they want if they're struggling with breads or pastas or trying to find a product that tastes good that they like that has the the texture and consistency that they're looking at we try and you know work around as much of that that we can and since i started at the store four and a half years ago the gluten-free products that we have, have has increased immensely which has right. been a lot more helpful they've gotten to taste a lot more a lot better um the price point on some of them is still a little bit high which is unfortunate but that's kind of the nature of the beast with any food allergy or insensitivity it seems like so, so tell us what are the foods that are gluten uh, containing? What are the major gluten? So anything that has wheat, rye, or barley, or comes from them, or a derivative of them, wheat goes by lots of different names. You have farro, you have semolina, you've got durum, you've, you know, malt is another one that people have to watch out for. There's quite a list. So you have your obvious things, your pastas, your breads, (coughs) those grains, obviously. But then you've got items that go into, like, a processed product that might have a derivative of wheat, but it's not always clearly marked on the label so you have to kind of watch out for all of those items too so it's a lot of label readings yeah thickeners i mean some can be corn derived which would be fine but then you've got some that are wheat derived so you're like we have to watch Mm -hmm. out for those and it did help when they came out with the labeling law where the top eight major allergens have to be on it so wheat's always going to show up on the food label but rye and barley don't have to be listed at the bottom where it says contains you know soy sesame and milk or something like that so that it's a lot of label reading it's a lot of getting used to certain products and finding what you like the first couple times you're gonna come grocery shopping you know i'm more than willing to come and go through the store with you but then you'll become familiar with those products that you're constantly buying so you'll know where they're at in the store you'll know which ones taste better than the other ones um 
and we'll go through and help you know kind of get that all figured out that's what i'm there for so if you if you um if you like pizza or if you like pasta Mm -hmm. or you like wheat-based products uh there are there's rice flour correct there's rice flour there's potato flour tapioca are all you know different options that you can have and we've got um different pizza crusts that are gluten-free some that are frozen some that are you know out on the shelf that are shelf stable you can have um there's a couple companies that make you know frozen pizza that we're you know some of us are used to having as well um if you like macaroni and cheese you know we can get there's companies that make that or you can find a noodle that you really like and make your own version of it at home so there's lots of ways to adapt the way you currently eat to it um and even if you look at like some of your condiments like barbecue sauce that's cookies barbecue sauce has always been gluten-free they just never had to worry about putting that on their label now they have they put it on the back side of their label so lots of companies are starting to sneak in that little the gf or say that it's gluten free even if they always have been but now they're just making it easier for customers to recognize those products especially if it's one that they like and isn't tried and true in their a staple in their diet it's interesting that uh when jack barker and i first talked about gluten sensitivity jack barker is a gastroenterologist now retired Mm -hmm. but it was like uh 12 years ago, 13 years ago on our TV show. Uh, I went after that that trip to the grocery store to find gluten-free, and there was very little. It's amazing. There yeah. was rice flour, and there was just there was just very little. Yeah, and you'd almost have to go to a specialty food store. You used to have to, and now yeah. it's, you know, our, our health markets, all our hy-vees have such a good selection of those, and, you know, the dietitians are very knowledgeable on the products and uh. stuff. Granted, we may have, we haven't eaten all the products, but we've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. And one of the things that Barker said was that if you have gluten sensitivity, that means that, I mean, if you have gluten, uh, if you have uh, celiac disease, you eat a little bit of, of uh, gluten and you develop a small intestine, the first part of the small intestine that gets very inflamed and that inflammation uh, takes away your absorption of certain elements and that inflammation makes you intolerant of milk so that if you get celiac disease, by the way, controlled, then you, your milk tolerance can, can come back. Uh, and that inflammation is um, in most people who have celiac disease occurs with a very small amount of, of gluten. So that if you have celiac disease, you should avoid, it's all or none. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's none you'd have. You, you do not even take little bits of it. Now, if you're a milk intolerant person, you can take a little bit more milk and then you get a little loosened stool and you can use it as a laxative. But not so with gluten. You just don't want to do a little bit of gluten because it, that inflammation in the small intestine can be occurring. Is, yep. is that how you took it, Kayla? Yep. And then because the, the diet is the only way to control celiac disease. There's no pill. There's no medication. There's no other treatment other than cutting gluten completely out of your diet. No. Let's take our second break. And I think we need to back up and just go over the symptoms of celiac disease when we come back because we kind of stepped over that step. But we'll take a break and we'll be right back. We're back to Prairie Doc Radio. Thank you for listening. We will take your questions at 692-1430. And we have a question, but I want to quickly finish up on celiac disease. Right. Well, Bob had one good question before. Why don't you a- ask that question? What question was that? What did Bob... That that was uh, animals that eat... You know, let's let's talk animals that eat... Uh, uh, wheat, grain-fed animals. Grain-fed animals. Uh, eggs. Uh, I mean, chickens that eat grain. Do you, you, you carry the celiac disease um, uh, 
you know, intolerable. Through the meat. Through the meat. And the, and the answer, Kayla? And I haven't seen anything that would show that you would, and I don't see a, how that would happen. So no. I think you'd be completely fine eating eggs and, and meat that are grain-fed, right. grain-fed animals. Totally agree with that. Right, okay. and, and we do have, uh, you were gonna ask. I just, what, let's just back up and just give a little bit of symptoms. We've just so briefly mentioned that it could be uh, constipation or diarrhea, but give me an example of what, what would make a person want to go in and talk to their care provider about celiac disease? I, I think anybody with irritable bowel syndrome, in other words, constipation, diarrhea, gut problems, bloating, all those things, gallbladder type symptoms, you know, intolerance to certain foods, anything along that line, or a family history of celiac disease should have the TTG antibody test. Now a person, it's interesting, if you're a celiac person who gets tested for TTG antibody and it's sky high and you've got celiac disease, wow, you have it, you have an antibody. There's an inflammatory uh, allergic-like reaction going on in your small intestine. So you put them on a celiac diet and you test them again in six months with a TTG antibody, it'll be normal. Because they're not eating wheat. And so a person who says, gee, I think I might have celiac disease, comes in and says, can I have a blood test for it? And I said, sure. And I test them. It's normal. And then I ask them, have you been on a celiac diet? Oh, yeah. I've been on a completely free celiac diet for three months, you know. And the answer is, well, then that'll make your test turn normal. So that's one thing. Uh, The other thing that I, I, I would clue you in on is that people who have that malabsorption problem can have weird malabsorption symptoms like the two cases I presented to you. One was iron deficiency. The person was bleeding. And the only way I made that diagnosis, that was just pure luck, was that uh, I had an EGD done where we, the, he's passed a scope down the esophago-gastro-duodenoscopy through the uh, esophagus, into the stomach, into the duodenum. And there's some weird inflammatory process going on. And the gastroenterologist, well, actually our surgeon, biopsied the heck out of the small intestine. And the biopsies came back. This is consistent with celiac disease. Could the person have celiac disease? And the answer was, oops, and yes. So the inflammation of the bowel can be severe enough that there's some microscopic bleeding. Right, the high, high level of the small intestine. And so that person had iron deficiency anemia, was losing weight. The people who knew him were afraid he was going to die from it. And um, he could have. And the second patient presented with a neuropathy, you know, a weird B12 deficiency. So a malabsorption once again. So it's uh, weird symptoms, unusual Okay, so if you have unusual gut symptoms, talk with your provider. There it is. Have the blood test. I guess that's what you're putting. Kaylee, any other comments? Milk intolerance might be a clue, too, because you get milk intolerance, secondary milk intolerance. Yeah, sometimes those two do go a little bit of hand in hand. But like you said, if you get the one under control, you'll be able to tolerate milk or at least certain certain kinds of milk. Some people will handle cottage cheese. Some can handle yogurt. Might not be able to drink a glass of milk again, but you might be able to handle some of those other forms of milk. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, we do have a question that has come in, and wh- uh, why don't we get to that so sure. that we won't get carried away and miss it. Uh, this caller asked Carried about away? Could we get carried away? This caller asked about cataract surgery and wants to know uh, what is the best anesthetic that they to be using. Could they ask for, should they ask for a certain anesthetic? Right. I, I think that you let that, leave that up to the ophthalmologist because... Um, she or he are going to want you immobile so they can do the surgery. And so certainly, uh, you know, when they're injecting the eye with 
different things and so on and so forth you and manipulating back there they may not want you awake and moving around now i've had both cataracts removed and they use the same drug that they use with colonoscopies which is propofol which is a wonderful anesthetic agent not a great drug for regular usual nighttime sleep uh, Michael Jackson will uh, attend uh, attest know, to attest to that issue, but um, it's a great anesthetic agent, and uh, that's what they've used for my cataracts, both of them. And you come out of it easily. Come out of it easily, and uh, you know if you if you say it's up to you, doc, that's a good answer. Another one is, I've heard propofol is really good. Uh, could I have a Michael Jackson sleep, but just one time? Mm, let's leave Michael out of it. Okay. Okay. Um, we should take our third break, and then we'll come back with further questions about the gastrointestinal system. Thank you for joining us for Prairie Doc Radio. We have Rick Holm, Kayla Amon, and I'm Joni Holm in studio today. We're talking about gastrointestinal issues. I uh, thought a good question uh, Bob just asked, and I'll ask you, Joni, was the question about peanut allergies uh, you deal with little kids who have peanut allergies why is that happening more and more nowadays I, I don't know I don't know the answer to why we're seeing it and and that was the consensus here in the studio you don't have any great answers do well you? I read recently that if you give your kids or if you eat peanuts when you've got a baby in your belly that your kids will have less chance of peanut allergy and and you know it's that old hygiene theory exposure when you're young prevents the the allergic reaction or the um, the problems that you get older, the immune, autoimmune problems that you can have. Uh, you know, it's interesting as we've cleaned up our act and the world has gotten less and less infections, then the increase in autoimmune diseases, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis, the lupus, the, you know, the, the, the maybe celiac disease, maybe peanut allergy, you know, uh, these autoimmune. I'm not buying it. You don't believe it. Well, we didn't. We pregnant women, or I'm not pregnant now, but in the past, have not Taylor decreased might. our uh, peanut intake to the point of having problems. Have you? I mean, is there a oh, gosh, reduction so in peanut intake but, uh, in pregnant women? You've heard that story women? about uh, no. peanut, peanut exposure in children. I read that just this. Not last in pregnant time. women. I haven't. Well, I read the have exposure of children exposure early to some kind of peanut product. Yeah, and I've heard you know, kind of you said a little bit early, but they. Sometimes still they don't recommend like protein type foods till kids are closer to nine months. But I've been eating peanut. I eat peanut butter sandwich every night before I go to bed, so my kids should be just fine. I yeah, hope that's, that's right. the there case because I, <laughs> I love peanut butter. It's my go-to protein for an evening snack. That's for yeah. sure. Joni, when do you add proteins to? And there's this story about adding milk too early but not too late. Well, that I don't. It recommend peanuts until after a year. Okay. And after two years, if there's an allergy in the family. Okay. For peanuts. But milk? Uh, after a year for milk. But but kids eat meat products. They can eat, you know, at nine months, ten months. I don't think they necessarily need a lot of it, but that's protein. What do, what do you When do you start anything besides breast milk? At six months, isn't it? What do you Between four and six, and there's been some changes recently. Some people, um, we, at before. Years ago, it was at about four months, and then it got really solid six months, and now there's a little bit of a push to go back toward between the four and six. So I don't have a good answer. I think it depends on the baby. You want to look at their development. Are they aware of food? Do they have good head control and back control? And those are some of the signs that they have uh, readiness to eat. Um, 
there was a it, people said that when their baby started drooling that would show they're ready well heck every baby drools way early and so drooling is not necessarily one of those signs and I found, of readiness I've to found eat. myself drooling lately so I mean you know maybe I'm ready to eat too I don't know Bob I don't know so anyway when how what are your your thoughts Kayla on uh, starting solids I think like a lot of uh, you know what you said when they're they'll, they'll kind of tell you when they're ready if they have good head control they they're you know they're not throwing their tongue so much forward when they're nursing or trying to have a bottle or things like that and if they you know are they are they hungry I mean if you just can't keep them fed and happy enough which is with breast milk or formula whatever you're doing then maybe you know start to introduce a little bit of that rice cereal at that four month mark and see how they tolerate it. Right. Explain throwing your tongue forward. I, I, tongue, I thrust. tongue thrust. Tongue thrust, yeah. It's, it's a common reflex that babies have. All babies have it. And with time, they improve and they understand how to take a spoon. That's one of the reasons we recommend spoon feeding versus putting food in the bottle. Because we want the child to figure out. And it takes time to learn a spoon. But it's part of speech development. It's part of yeah, understanding and using your mouth. So we do want babies to eat from a spoon versus a bottle. I was thinking that tongue thrusting might occur mostly in the third grade when all those girls were sticking their tongue out at me. <laughs> that might occur too, but yeah, we're talking about infants. Yes, we're talking about It comes back or something like that. So... Um, uh, what about duodenal ulcers? We're going to talk about a variety of different things. It used to be that we'd have severe bleeding ulcers, uh, and then the treatment of choice was the sippy diet. Do you remember hearing that, Kayla? I have not heard of the sippy diet. Oh, you're too young. <laughs> the sippy diet was pure cream. They drank, you drink high levels of fatty foods to settle the stu- coat Bad stomach. Bad idea. It didn't work. In fact, no. <laughs> uh, in fact, what happened is people would be started dying from vascular disease. Now, that was the theory. I don't know if the, the, there's any solid scientific data, wow. but they gained weight and had all sorts of problems associated with uh, the, the sippy diet for, <laughs> for ulcers. And it's uh, interesting. We took people to surgery all the time. In fact, when I did my surgery rotation at Emory uh, in, uh, as a junior in, in med school, 72, 73, 74, 73, um, they were talking about the bread and butter surgery for general surgeons was to repair a duodenal ulcer. Uh, And uh, you'd cut out that and you'd repair the the front of the, you'd shorten the stomach to the, and the duodenum and bring it together. Well, what caused that? What caused, and we don't have much time Well, it's probably an H. pylori infection. Right. And we really solved a lot of the problems associated with that bleeding duodenal ulcer uh, with uh, uh, Tagamet, which was cimetidine, which was the first uh, Zantac kind of Pepsid kind of drug h2 blockers we didn't even get into that and there's a lot of discussion that well that have to do another time tomorrow night you get all that information about whether you should use tagamet or zantac or pepsid or prilosec or seven o'clock public tv uh will and we also entertain questions at that time so if you have questions about ulcers or we love questions uh kayla you make sure to to throw those difficult questions uh, dietary questions at us tomorrow night. Yeah, well, I'll be calling in. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, we so are Tim Ridgeway is just fabulous, and he, it ought to be good. Thank you both for being here, Bob, and stay healthy out there, people. <laughs>